Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to another episode of Eight Women, where we bring you stories of women in the South Asian diaspora. This platform is a place for women to gather, connect, and share authentic narratives. Today, we're excited to interview a South Asian woman who has been at the forefront of diversity, gender, and race issues in North America. Originally from Kolkata, or Calcutta as it was known back then, Manana Purkayasta immigrated to the US in 1984. She's currently the professor of sociology as well as Asian and American studies at the University of Connecticut. Bandana has published over 50 articles and books focusing on intersectionality, human rights, migration, violence, and peace. In 2013-14, she was president of Sociologists for Women in Society. She's the US representative to the International Sociological Association. Her academic work made her a co-winner for the American Sociological Association's 2019 Jesse Barnard Award. A book she co-edited on human rights in the US won the Gordon Nirbayashi Award in 2013. I can continue, but since we have an extremely accomplished, articulate and erudite professor, I'll let her do what she knows best, guide us in understanding our world today. Just a heads up, this interview was recorded in 2020 and we've left in references to that time. Hi, Vandana, and welcome to our podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Monica. I look forward to this conversation. West Bengal to Massachusetts is a huge change. Did you always want to move to the US? I'm probably one of the fewer people who had a lot of reservations about moving to the US. And in some ways, it's a story of downward mobility that many women of my generation faced by virtue of migrating. And if I can take two minutes to explain what I mean, from 1965, when the bans against Asian migration were lifted in the U.S., the U.S. actually opened the doors to highly skilled migrants, people who are in the physics kind of sciences or the engineers or the doctors. So it was a kind of skilled male skill that the U.S. was looking for. And people like myself who came to the U.S., Upon marriage, and not because I came to school here, so I was working in college in Kolkata already. So when I came here, I suddenly found that I might have a lot of degrees and it meant nothing because it did not fit into that specification of highly skilled. The first years were rough. It was really not pleasant. That's been about 36 years ago. So obviously, I've come around to a different spot. Migration actually creates these inequalities for women. I know a lot of other women who came about that time, and I don't want to downplay the role of homemakers, 
but basically they gave up their careers and by the time they wanted to join 10 years down the road 15 years down the road they had other extraordinary battles to fight because even if you had credentials they are outdated and you've not done much so that's the migration stream i belonged to it was a reluctant journey let's circle back to what you did in india what were those degrees that you couldn't use here obviously you did something right what did you do that was different so that you could then become a part of academia and not just be a migrant spouse what i ended up doing really is changing my subject i kind of started all over again i was a geographer in india when i came here i re-enrolled myself in sociology so my phd is in sociology i have to say this has been the right discipline for me but when i began it was a struggle because i was going to classes with people who had had sociology before but i wouldn't trade sociology for any other subject so the journey was good for me And how did you choose your field Asian Asian American women when I was joining the field there were actually very few people who had studied Asian Americans as a group you know the job advertisement was about somebody who could be teaching and developing the field of Asian American studies and I had the word about PhD so I had a bit of advantage there So in a way the job chose me I also have been training myself in Asian American studies for all the time that I have worked and I've worked at Yukon for a little more than 20 years so I've learned along with it So it had nothing to do with the fact that you are Asian American it was an issue to the extent that not a lot of people were studying asian americans i could almost guarantee that the overwhelming number of people who even became interested in asian american topics were <laughs> asian americans themselves and you begin to say oh i have something to say about it i have something to contribute So I think the Asian Americanness comes from that angle because you find nobody else is talking about certain subjects. When you say Asian American, who are you defining? Because when I'm talking to people, they think I'm Indian, I'm South Asian, I'm different. Asian American I'm from the southeast of Asia. My definition of Asian American is kind of a state almost a census definition that is all the 30 odd countries that are lumped into that category. but the ways i think about this group as a whole is in terms of the movements that have tried to bring these mostly disparate groups together on many political and social issues groups that are willing to lobby together asian americans make up a very small portion of the us political landscape but in many cases we are actually a significant voting block for all kinds of things and so in order to vote as a block or to make our voices heard we need to form collaborations so my asian americanness is definitely dependent on those collaborations but i'm still very privileged compared to people who are coming in as refugees not only refugees from 
Cambodia or Vietnam, but increasingly refugees who are of Nepali origin, but from Bhutan, who actually make up a huge portion of the refugees coming into the U.S. today. I have to consistently keep reminding myself about the people whose lives are very different from my own. Do I always get it? No. But part of my effort is to create that consciousness to remember with a great deal of humility and try to understand. I want to circle back to your own journey in America and how it was for you. When you first moved, were you surrounded by other Indian families? How easy was it to celebrate Durga Puja or did you have to adopt other festivals? Just a little bit about those early days. Yeah, yeah. those were fun days and frustrating days. The frustration was still I learned to drive. Having grown up in Kolkata, I had no idea of driving. And I can admit publicly, (laughs) I failed my driving test twice. Once I started driving, I began to create a community of my own, ironically, with some geographers were at the University of Massachusetts. That's how I circled to sociology. It wasn't very hard to find a Bengali community because my husband, Indrajit, had come seven years before me and he had gotten into a Bengali community in Connecticut. That's where we lived for the first almost 18 years of our lives. It was easy to just go to the pujas. It was a smaller group and once groups realize that couple of people, they deliver on what they say, you get called in to do more. We definitely have never lived in a place where we have other Indians around us. Like, just never. When we lived in Connecticut, my closest friends, and they still happen to be closest friends, are friends who are from overwhelmingly white neighborhoods. This is where the privilege shows. My daughter, when she went to school in the town that we lived the greatest part of our life, she was amongst a handful of quote-unquote, non-white kids in the entire school system. In a way, that gave me the opportunity to have a variety of very rich relationships. This is not to say I don't have relationships with people who are Indian or Bengali. I do. But what I think of my normal social networks, it's just a real mix. That's kind of where I ended up. You came in the 1980s. There may not have been that many Indian families and the distances must have been quite vast. I think in the 80s, there were not only Indians in Connecticut, there were at least five major Indian community groups. So people were there. But if you remember the selection process of the immigration laws, the people who came were mostly all very highly educated in a whole variety of occupations. And most of the people I knew lived like me in mostly white communities. And so the gathering place was either in people's homes or during the time of these events. But Connecticut isn't... Like New Jersey, for example, you have areas where you have Indian origin people running restaurants and grocery stores and other commercial enterprises. Connecticut, as far as I know, didn't have commercial enclaves, certainly not residential enclaves. There's an interesting 
inequality in Connecticut, one of the richest states in the nation, where the cities are all very poor. Everybody lived in the suburbs. So that defined how community was done. You couldn't just casually encounter anybody anywhere. If there were no commercial places, if there were no restaurants, and if you felt like eating Indian food, you probably had to cook it yourself. (laughs) I didn't cook too much. We drive extraordinary distances to go and pick up Indian food if we really and truly wanted to have better food than my husband or I could cook. He cooked as well. We had to fend for ourselves. Madhu Jaffrey's introduction to Indian cooking has been my Bible. I love to cook following her. Based on your experience, what do you think you'd tell other immigrant women who are raising children, battling cultures? What would pave their path? What I did is I put in a lot of time to finding people whose values I shared very conscious things about living up to your expectations and responsibilities for families, people who would be kind without any strings attached, people who would be kind of fun to hang around with, with enough of different interests that I could get into a few other things as could they. So I found communities that way. The friends I have who are Indian actually share those exact same qualities. But I didn't start off by saying that I have to find Indians. So I could raise my daughter with these other people because we were sharing the same values. But at the same time, we made sure that Ahili went to India regularly because she needed to get the spoiling that only grandparents and aunts and others can provide. We were the stern taskmasters. The joke that Ahili always said is that her friends teased her. She would be traveling all over the world, but had never been to Disneyland. And she hadn't been to Disneyland because summer... I'd go to India and she'd go with me. I would definitely say that really prioritize your values, whatever they are. It's much easier now because of social media to keep in touch with a lot of people in a lot of different ways. But the downside of social media also is that you could have people of exactly your same values and then forget to listen to what else is happening in larger parts of the world. So kind of trying to achieve that balance, we bring a lot of talent as first-generation immigrants to the U.S. But the U.S. also has vast numbers of very interesting people from all different backgrounds, which, you know, I wouldn't have gotten that if I had actually stayed where I grew up in Kolkata, even though Kolkata has a lot of diversity. And... I think my life has grown and become so much richer because you listen to other people, you listen to how their journeys were, you become friends, and your mind is getting stretched and you want that to be a part of your life. Ahili never really went to any place that taught her the language or Indian dances because we didn't have it, which tends to be the track that many families follow. And good for them. We didn't, and it worked out for us. I'm a Patel, 
and our family was all here. So we already had our village with us. It takes a village to raise children. And it's important to maintain some of those customs and traditions of how you were raised and make sure that your children are raised with it. Did you have this large extended family who became your village to raise your children together? All of you must have been young mothers, working women. How did you balance and juggle your life as a mother, a professional and running a house? It wasn't that we didn't have any family here, but we didn't have our immediate family here, totally in Indian terms. We had, in American terms, second cousins and so on, who lived in New York City, in upstate New York and so on. They certainly added a great deal of richness to Ahili's life, but none of them lived within close distance of us. That, I didn't have it. In terms of the juggling, Monica, I had developed these really deep friendships with a lot of people in my neighborhood, even though they weren't Indian. I literally, I had one Indian friend. It then turned out that her cousin married our cousin, so she's also a relative, but she lived in the next town over. So my friends plus this cousin slash friend were my fallback network. And there were times when it was very hard because my husband had to travel a lot. When he was in town, he was 100% taking up the slack. I've had the privilege of having a very equal marriage, and I think I survived that way. We went to childcare and after-school care, of course. But the other times, these friends who lived near my house were my backup members. Even when I lived in Connecticut, my university took me like an hour, 15 minutes to go there. So if there was a snowfall, it would be these friends from my neighborhood who would go and pick Ahili up from daycare because I would not be able to get back on time. For a long time, Ahili's friends thought that my husband and I were divorced because we never showed up at the school events together ever. If he was in town, he did it. And when he wasn't in town, I did it because you take the circumstances you have <laughs> and you make something of it. <laughs> you have a very successful career. And to be a tenured professor, you have that pressure of publishing and you juggled all this. Doing research and publications and teaching are things I care about. So fundamentally, if I have to be me, it is a matter of you have to figure out in your life how you prioritize some things. And I guess that's what I did. And I think everybody does that. Ahili will tell you her impression when she was little. She wouldn't go into academia because academics work 24-7. And while I didn't work 24-7, her impression arises from the fact that I'd take her to activities and I'd sit in the car and grade. I was kind of thrilled to be here. Jill Biden did the same thing, actually. I said, yeah, you and me both, you're always off in a corner doing some other work. If it matters to me, I have to figure out how to do it well. Given the current global climate, do you think your field is going to gain even more traction going forward? What exactly does it encompass? As sociologists, the fundamental thing we study are power and inequalities. In terms of traction, I just want to give you one example because this is looming. 
President Trump passed an executive order. It basically is against anti-racist, anti-sexist education. And if it goes into effect, it has a whole series of ramifications. We're certainly the thorn in many people's flesh. I could take executive orders like that by saying that, look, we're doing something right, which pushes the button in terms of people beginning to think and confront structures of racism. On the other hand, it's an uncomfortable position to be in when you're also attracting the ire of powers that be, not only in the U.S., but in other countries as well. People are really worried about how they should speak every time they bring up conversations about power and inequalities based on research. This is not their opinion. There are pushbacks from governments that are more authoritarian because that's exactly the power that's been questioned. How difficult is it being a woman academic what would you say to up-and-coming women in academia and also put into perspective the Me Too movement? How does that influence women in academics? The one piece of advice I'd give any woman in any occupation is create networks because things are bound to happen to women and particularly women of color, and you can't be the only voice protesting it. Other people have to be protesting on your own behalf. The other advice, you always have to remember you're running a marathon and not a sprint. So you can't use up all of your energies and you have to make sure you're at many decision-making tables. Because if you aren't, then those structures are not going to change. So the networks are really important and the networks have to be across racial groups. Every single person in your network may not be your absolutely closest friend, but you need to be in relationships of trust that collectively you can ask for changes. You need somebody who has your back, you know, and that's the whole thing, networking and creating your community. You are a member of many different organizations where you're sitting at the table and you have a role in the decision making. What hat do you wear when you serve on these international boards? Are you an American? Are you an Indian? Are you an immigrant? For the International Sociological Association, I'm definitely American. My colleagues know I'm originally from India. Actually, International Sociological Association in many ways is far more of an open body. There is a big ongoing push right now to make it even more diverse. Representations from Latin America, from the Caribbeans, from various African countries, Asian countries, to interrupt the power of the Euro-American power structure. I usually don't have to prove anything. People will ask me if issues of India come up. I'm happy to say I don't know this. That's not an issue. Within the U.S., when I'm in a leadership position, I have to balance the needs of various communities of color. I'm also trying to make sure that that's not the only agenda, because those agendas often just run out of steam. People will say, yes, 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 but the work won't be done. It definitely requires the networks. You have to push the agenda. I'm not saying you don't. And in all your various leadership roles, which do you think was the most fulfilling to you or maybe even challenging and why? 
both being president of Sociologists for Women in Society, that had challenges of one kind. And of course, being part of ISA, it poses a different kind of challenge. And I mean challenge as a way of indicating that it was fulfilling to do some things. Sociologists for Women in Society, I'll say SWS, this is the 50th year that we are celebrating. This was the organization that actually got the first women into tenure-track jobs in sociology in the U.S. The history of women being at the table is not actually very long. This was the organization that first started the journal Gender and Society because American Sociological Association would not accept it. And Gender and Society right now, because of the same women, is ranked number one in women's studies and very highly ranked within sociology. So the work of a lot of women has gone into maintaining this space. It's an academic organization, but it also trains people for leadership to learn the unstated rules and so on. When I was the president, however, I had the task of moving the organization from being a feminist collective to a more bureaucratically run organization. Now, I did not do this by myself. I would not claim it. But I became president just at the point when that kind of contested process was already underway. And I had to move it along. We had a lot of money. We had a lot of things in place. We couldn't continue to operate as a collective when the membership had gone through the roof. Uh, Collectives have a lot of good things, but they don't work when you become big. I had an excellent group of multiracial women who were watching my back, who were providing good ideas. So it was very fulfilling. The feminism has not gone away, nor will it go away. We have all kinds of battles that we are continuing to fight, among which are the vast inequities of wages. That kind of feminism, this is what you know SWS does. Talking about the inequity of wages makes me want to segue into What are the issues that women of the diaspora face, not just with wages, but just completely as a collective? I think women in the diaspora, let's say the Indian diaspora, actually face some of the same challenges that most of the women of color face. I'm just going to talk about academia for a moment. So every one of us had to learn the hard way that we were being vastly underpaid and then go and lobby to get some of those corrections done. Those corrections are never 100%. But I also have to say that there are differences between groups of color. In academia, I sometimes hear colleagues from other parts of the university who are wonderful people in their own right, but they'll say, oh, I never faced racism, as though that's the end of the story. But it cannot be the end of the story if the issue is larger than the handful of African-American colleagues or Latino colleagues. And some of these inequities are simply because we don't have as much information about what creates the wage equities and so on and so forth, because a lot of it is just unstated rules. We are not fully part of the political coalition of women of color. It's kind of a dynamic, somewhat contested relationship. And in this, I feel it's up to us to work. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Conduct. How can we as a community collectively come together as women? Not everybody can join the sociological society. Some people live far and distant. They don't have the means. They don't have the monetary means. They're just consumed with putting food on the table. Would mentorship play a role in helping women? Mentorship is always playing a role because at the end of the day, what are you doing as a mentor? You're conveying those kinds of information that are not readily available, right? With that information, you're trying to help people to make decisions that suit their lives. So that's just a broad way of talking about it. But going back to the people who are just consumed with their lives, and most people are that way, I think a couple of the critical issues for us to keep in mind is none of us as Indian immigrants would have been in this country if the civil rights movement hadn't happened and challenged the Asian bans or the race-based migration bans. That's a fundamental issue that we need to keep in mind because if we fall back into we came to this country and we achieve what we achieve by ourselves, we are denying the people who came before us and managed to crack open the door. And very often, we were better positioned to go in through that door. So the question fundamentally is, everybody doesn't have to do everything. Every one of us consumed as we are with our own lives, there are times at which we can speak up or make a difference or speak to other people within our networks and try to get them to see there are points of solidarities. That work we can all do instead of just thinking about Indian American, Indian American, Indian American. That's the community building, keeping kind of a central humanity in mind that we are part of a history. We are benefiting from a history. We are benefiting from struggles. And then you're talking about the civil rights movement. Kamala Harris's mother was very active in the civil rights movement. She paved the way for Kamala Harris to become the vice president. It's an extraordinary moment for us. I've heard a few people ask, is she going to be for Indians? And my response usually is, she can't be only for Indians. That's not her role. She was not raised that way, nor should she be. But she definitely has the women of color issues front and center in her mind. We can't only think in terms of Indian Americanness to build our communities. It's very important 
whatever information they have, we share, but we don't share it while we're creating boundaries between ourselves and other communities of color. What was it like raising Ahili in the community that you were building for yourselves? And how different would it have been if you were in India? I think if I was raising her in India, she would have gotten a lot more of the family spoiling. The thing that I have not mentioned is my parents and many members of my family and my husband's family were part of the independence movement. My father and uncles went to jail multiple times. My mother's name was still on the police files because she had gone and given so many speeches. She was never sent to jail, but things like that. I grew up in a family that had a different set of values. The values were put people first. Education is one thing that can't be taken from you because my parents and my husband's family had come through the partition, having lost everything. Prioritize education, but don't let things like partition make you bitter against anybody because it would not serve anybody in the longer run. So she would have gotten that in bigger measure if I was in India. Here, I actually have these absolutely spectacular friends. She was more spoiled by my friends than me. We're lucky that we have your daughter with us today. So I wanted to invite Ahili to join this conversation. Ahili, welcome to the podcast. Having a mother like Bandana must have been truly awesome, but it can be daunting also. How has your mother impacted the woman you've become today? Quite honestly, I don't find it daunting. My mom and my dad are both incredible role models. They led through action. There's never a point where they sat me down and said, this is how life is going to be and this is how you're going to be a good human. Our family was spread out all across the world, but I feel incredibly close to people who are living the next town over to those who are in India. And it's because my parents and in my mom particularly, every weekend after a long 24-7 week, went in and starts at six in the morning and starts calling people in India individually and having these hour-long phone calls. By the time I wake up, she has found out what everyone else is up to, what they're doing with their lives, what they're eating, what they're interested in. And that gets passed on to how much she cherishes having those relationships despite being separated by many oceans. She never sits down and says, Ahili, I've called this many people and I found out this many things. It's just learned behavior that I observed how much value she put in to maintaining these family relationships. And in turn, I realized that I valued them as well. And so now it's up to me to make those relationships. It's these kind of actions and I'm reaping the benefits of it. In return, we get back a lot of love. <laughs> Can we talk about your trajectory? Growing up as a first-generation immigrant child, what kind of decisions you made in life? Were they your decisions? Were they joint decisions? Were they told-to-you decisions? And what do you do now? I grew up in Simsbury, Connecticut. It's a small rural town in the middle of Connecticut. And I was one of, I think, three children of Indian ancestry. And 
probably one of seven people of color growing up. I was really lucky in the fact that I had a lot of family relationships and we did have a small Bengali community that we saw at different holidays. However, it really taught me that I was not going to be friends with someone who looked like myself, who had the same background, and that was going to be okay. And this is something that my parents really celebrated that I got to look beyond my own mirror. I got to grow up with Catholic Americans, Jewish Americans. I got to grow up with immigrants from other countries. I became very proud of my story. I come from a family of freedom fighters, of academics, of people in all different classes. Within your own family, you reach out and know that you may come from the same place, but you celebrate those differences. And when you expand that into a community that's not exactly like you, I think it really enriched my childhood. This is probably the only time where my mom encouraged me to look beyond these few Bengalis that there were in the state of Connecticut. And Oso really did a great job teaching me to be prideful in our cultural background. These were just a part of my growing up that she introduced these different arts, music, culture into various parts. And of course, how could I forget the food? But that was in the backdrop of having just a variety of other people to also balance that through. So as a Bengali American, I could speak confidently if confronted on this is how India is. And if that version of India didn't drive with what I was taught, I had the wherewithal to confront it, to address it and push that this is not how all Indians are. Or this is not how all Bengalis are. At the same time, I really want to stress growing up with a myriad of different people just made me feel a lot more confident that I could adapt to any situation. At the age of, I believe, 13, I decided I needed to study abroad and my parents were fine with that. I ended up living in Switzerland for about six months on a program that I had found. My parents really encouraged me and I'm not sure why, that I could leave as a sophomore and go halfway around the world, spend six months in an alpine village. And that's the kind of encouragement. They really gave me that confidence that I can do whatever I want and I will have their unconditional support. Moving on from Switzerland, I then spent time in Pennsylvania, in Edinburgh, going from my undergraduate degree to my master's degree. And now I spent the last eight years in a company that I formed with my father. As you can see, a very clear and close family relationship. That's such an incredible story. And how were your parents about who you married? Gabriel is Catholic, a Mexican-American who's from Texas, third generation. It was very quick upon introduction that my parents really enjoyed meeting him, spending time, and knew he was a good person. And they knew that this was someone who had shared values, a keen interest in education and adventure, and just had such a keen respect for his own family. But they largely left everything up to me. We had our own independent relationship. I didn't need to seek permission. I just knew upon introducing Gabriel to my parents that if they liked him, 
I would be really happy that I had picked a good person because I really trust my parents' judgment, but it also doesn't define my relationship. Bandana, how confident were you about trusting all the judgments and decisions that Ahili was making? Because it's very unusual for a South Asian parent to give the kind of freedom that you did, especially at the time that you came in the 80s? It's really two sources. One is both my husband and I grew up in households where after a point, nobody asked us what we were doing and why we were doing it. I actually did a study of the generation like Ahili and of second generation South Asian Americans, so Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Nepali origin young people. And in a way, Monica, what I found was horrifying. I'm talking about, let's say, 2000, 2001. I was doing interviews with people who were in college or they had just joined occupations. And what I found was all parents want the same kind. There were degrees of freedom that they allowed their children. But I definitely found the more parents were controlling The kids were coming to college and they were finding like 500 different ways in subverting those kinds of controls. And the ways they were choosing were not good. While I wrote that book, I learned several lessons in life about what not to do. Several parents would encourage their children to primarily be friends with Indians in a way that also indicated that what they were trying to control was for their children not to have sex outside marriage. Many of these young people were often with other Indians, so it didn't solve anything. There'd be parents calling up at night, meaning nine or 10, which they considered to be late. Who are you with? Who are you with? Well, I'm with these other Indian kids. Fine. End of story. This kind of control doesn't work. Not all Indian parents were that way. I had a smaller group, but young people whose parents were more like ours. And those people had very different accounts of their experiences. So there was no question in my mind, even if I had ever wanted to go in that direction. You really emphasize personal responsibility. From a young age, I was taught to be accountable for my own actions. I had a sense of not causing people distress, letting my parents know where I was. I think it really taught me to be a lot more respectful. Yeah, and here's another example. I always got questions from community members about, oh, when is Ugly getting married? Are you looking for They always said, because this is what we believe, I'm not going to be the one looking. She will find who she finds, and we 100% trust her judgment. Find a steady relationship based on shared values. That part of fending off the community, we did do. Times are changing now. Indian children growing up have a lot more leeway and their parents are more relaxed. Pressure is not as intense. On the other hand, you have Netflix series like Indian Matchmaking. You deal with these communities. Has it changed? I'm not 100% sure that it's changed as deeply as I would love to see. How do you do your Indianness is also based on what we are consuming, whether it's a Netflix series or what we're wearing. Just think of the very sexualized male versus female attire and that kind of consumption. 
which then highlights the differences. At one fundamental level, nothing has changed. We might appear to be more modern. We might appear to be more open. The question is, are we more open to consumption and certain kinds of lifestyles because it makes us feel modern? Or is it because we're actually fundamentally building more trust and providing more freedom? Anna Haley, do you concur? Definitely. And I think this goes back to who is in your immediate community. I think growing up, I had a lot of friends whose families had very tight control and really espoused a very specific brand of what an Indian was. And what I found is that brand of being Indian was really something from maybe 30, 40 years ago, India, and not what modern India is today. When that's reproduced and you have a a network where you don't look outside it and you're just living 20, 30 years in the past. Well, that version of India is going to be different from a version that my parents really taught me is that India is not one thing. My version of being Indian is actually different from what my mom's version of being Indian is because my experience is being a second generation American who goes back to India frequently how I look at India and India's history and culture and food is through that lens, whereas my mom has a reverse lens. And understanding these differences and looking beyond these differences, I think is key. I have a question for both of you. Bandana, is there one thing you see in Ahili that makes you proud? And Ahili, What's the one quality of your mom that you've adopted? The one thing that both my husband and I absolutely agree about, she is definitely respectful of people, their humanity, and she'll act towards people with that mix of humility and love and kindness. She's very consistent. That's really what makes her successful in keeping up so many relationships within a very geographically far-flung family, for sure, but also with friends and so on. She's highly accomplished in many other ways. For me, that's the fundamental thing. (laughs) (laughs) I think the best quality about my mom, I just want to say the fact of how she is a mentor. It's something, Monica, that you mentioned earlier. My mom so accomplished and has done so many incredible things on her own, she could just take credit and say, I've done this. I've become the head of sociology. I've become the editor. I've broken all of these barriers. My mom never speaks in I. It's we've accomplished. We've gotten there. And the fact is my mom is here because of her many networks. And she in turn make sure that she's leading by example and she is making sure that the next generation is ready to follow in her footsteps. I've watched her from the point where she had switched over, had learned a whole new subject and was studying for a PhD while dropping me off at daycare and after school activities and studying in her car and doing all of these things into becoming a professor and leading the class and really making sure that She gets into these incredible career paths and she makes sure immediately that she's not publishing just by herself, that she's pulling up one of the grad students, that she's making sure somebody who's never stayed in a hotel before 
can go in and go to the conferences and go through those experiences and that she's going to look beyond that immediate circle when she very much could just say, I'm done. I have a lot of responsibilities. I have a lot in my hand. We have a lot of family obligations. She never makes that excuse. And her every part of being a professor is both leading her class and then extending and making sure her students are in a better position mentally and then also in their careers in the future. That's the thing that I just think is so incredible and something that I'm hoping that I've learned from because I want to be like that. Bandana, this is mic drop. I think we need to end with this amazing validation from your daughter. Where do you see yourself going forward, continuing more research, more articles, more leadership roles, maybe returning to India at all? There was one time, Monica, where I absolutely thought that after I retired, I'd stay a good part of my life in India and then maybe a few months here. I no longer think that. And it's for a very prosaic reason. I have significantly better medical care here than I have in India. I'm always going to go as long as I can travel. In the longer run, what I wish to do is write more general pieces for public consumption. Because I've spent so much of time doing the academic work, I haven't done that as much. So I'd like to develop that. I have a rapid fire round and I'd like both of you to respond to it. Kolkata or Grafton? Kolkata. Kolkata. The migrant crisis in one word. Avoidable. It's going to say the same thing. Biggest fear. Loneliness at some stage of my life. Isolation. (laughs) Best accomplishment. Mentoring a new generation. Ahili. Being her daughter. That was her accomplishment. (laughs) I'm feeling very unaccomplished right now, but I think it's just giving back. Trump or Modi? Neither. Women leaders are? Dynamic. Necessary. Favorite cuisine? Japanese. (laughs) Japanese. Are you mother and daughter? (laughs) Go-to beverage? Sparkling water. (laughs) Cabsov. Saris or slacks? Saris, any day. Slacks for me. Art history or sociology? In sociology, including art history, which is a cheating answer. Do you want to explain why you include art history in sociology? Because major trends in art, including in India, like if you look at the art Bengal Renaissance came out of social inequalities and conditions they were trying to address. So those two are not separate in my mind. You could say that art is the encapsulation of sociology, politics, socioeconomic status, and it's capturing a moment of time. Interesting. And what would you pick, Ahili? As a history of art slash political science double major, I would definitely pick the history of art. Bandana and Ahili, on behalf of Ake Women and my colleague Medha Jai Shankar, I want to thank you for speaking with us and sharing your wonderful insights. It was fun to see your camaraderie and the amazing relationship you share. For all our listeners, you can catch this and other episodes on our social media handle at Equoman Global on Facebook, LinkedIn and Instagram. 
and remember to look out for Ek Women's next amazing story. Thank you very much. Thank you. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.